So let's talk about the Bible is a, a book of the kingdom. It, came, it contains the history of the kingdom in the earth, past, present, and future. So that necessarily gets into eschatology. So everyone always, whether you know it or not, you have a philosophy of history in your mind and heart. Okay? Even the way you interpret your own past will be representative of how you see Scripture, God, reality. And you actually have a theory of history that affects how you view your own life. So if you study various cultures of the world and, and their philosophies of history, I'm almost tempted to get on the board here and write some things, but uh, for, uh, what, are, what are some philosophies of history that you're aware of as far as, uh, well, let me, let me give you more. Um, so what would uh, an evolutionary philosophy of history look like as far as if you had to graph it? Let's, let's think in terms of graphs. What's that? Okay, so that would be what direction in a line? Kind of linear and going up. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what's that? Uh, linear optimistic. Yeah, linear optimistic. Okay. Now, uh, what does anyone see any problem with that? Philosophically? Yeah, the second law of thermodynamics from a scientific or uh, physics point of view uh, evolution would require that there be some principle where uh, people and history are moving toward a positive direction. But is that necessarily happening? So it's uh, very like uh, something I point out in my utopia class that I teach at Sinclair, although I haven't done it in a few years, but I'm thinking about going back to it at some time. Um, you know, there's uh, really, there's, all, there's basically uh, three major kinds of uh, histories. There's linear, and within linear, there's A and B. There can be linear optimistic going slightly up, linear pessimistic going down, right? There can be chaos, which you would graph uh, something like this, you know, like history starts here, and, you, you know, it's... Uh, Darn ball. You know, not necessarily going anywhere, right? Most of the cosmogonies, or myth, what's called mythopoeic cosmogonies, the, the stories of how we got here of the ancient cultures of the world, like Mesopotamia, Egypt, and so forth, uh, tend to start with primeval chaos, right, as, as a starting point. Evolution, technically, would be a chaotic view of history. But, there's a, but most evolutionists are historically linear op, uh, optimistic views of history. In other words, they think somehow, and where do they put their optimism? In man. In man, right. In man's reason, in man's ability to make a better world. Um, so, uh, uh, well, we'll get there. Uh, so, for instance... Um, Trying to think of uh, who wrote uh, Brave New World? Um, Alduis Huxley. Um, so if you look at like Alduis Huxley's writings prior to World War II, um, he basically has all these grandiose optimistic statements he makes about the future of man. It's kind of like 
Star Wars, you know, like, uh, like, or Star Trek would be better. Like Star Trek is based on a very evolutionary, linear, optimistic view of history. So a basic idea of evolution is that there's probably li life in other planets and other galaxies and so forth. Because, you know, if given enough time and enough chance, it must have happened elsewhere, too. And so we're eventually going to discover that life on other planets. So why they spend millions and millions looking for, the, for any evidence of life on other planets. That's a big, because that would be a big coup for evolutionists if they were to find that Earth wasn't somehow unique in terms of its, uh, of its having, the, you know, intelligent life and so forth. Right? So... Uh, but then, you know, in the Star Wars world or in the Star Trek world, you know, something like the United Nations has now exists among all the galaxies, all, you know, all the uh, planets and various solar systems and various galaxies. And the the people of the ship, uh, what's the ship in Star Trek called? Enterprise. The Enterprise. Yeah, that's U.S. Uh, is it just the Enterprise? It's just the Enterprise, not U.S. There's, oh, it is U.S.S.? Are you sure? Oh, okay. Wow. So it's, uh, so it's, uh, what does USS stand for? Interesting. But it's kind of, it's kind of the Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, utopian idea. Does everyone understand that, like, uh, when Woodrow Wilson came up with the idea of the League of Nations, that that really is something in the ancient heart of man that eventually there would be some confederation of nations whereby uh, everyone would live happily together and there'd be peace and harmony and justice and, and no more exploitation and slavery and, and you know, economic in, incongruities and injustices and so forth, right? That's kind of in the heart of fallen man that, that, uh, that, that historically man can achieve that, right? And so Huxley is interesting because he has all these uh, humanistic, secular, uh, hopeful views of history up until World War II. And then he makes a grandiose statement after World War II that he sees mankind as, as basically played out and hopeless. <laughs> because, uh, because he begins to, you know, his, his faith in humanity has been shaken to the core. Right? So what you tend to see is you tend to see like uh, the height of historical linear optimism in terms of modern culture since to, uh, let's, let's define modernism as starting with the Renaissance and, and the Reformation. The height of uh, historical linear optimism was the uh, 19th century humanist, uh, you know, uh, disciple, descendants of the Enlightenment, you know, and they had various economic systems that they developed. What are some of the economic systems? There's three major ones you ought to at least be aware of. Socialism. What's, what is it? Socialism. Socialism would be one, right? What's, what's that? No, uh, not really getting there. Socialism would be one. Capitalism is one. And communism. Those are three you should know about. What are some of the, and, and of course, uh, what, what uh, the Axis powers of World War II, what was their, what was their economic system? Yeah, it's called fascism, but it's, it's kind of, uh, they, would, they would call it democratic socialism or national socialism. So what would be the difference uh, in pure communism to 
democratic or nationalist socialism. A military ruler, right? Mm, a communism in, in pure theory would say there would eventually be no need for a military because, because they see eventually the world is becoming one giant nation and one giant economic system and the boundaries of nations would, would actually uh, disappear. That's the, you know, that's the great hope in pure Marxist doctrine. Have you never, uh, have all of you read the Communist Manifesto? I hope it's, oh my gosh, it's just a little book. You should all read it. It's the, their Bible. You know, it's Marx and Engels' view of the future. It's like you're supposed to read that in sixth grade or something, whatever, ninth grade, something. Uh, did you guys, didn't you guys have to read it at Dominion Academy? You never read the Communist Manifesto? Jane, you never read it? Wow. Where's uh, Dana Paramala? Jeez. What's that? Uh, Byron, have you read it? Has anybody read it? You read it, Bob? Yeah. All right, so what's the difference? You know, in socialism, they don't necessarily predict the ending of nation states. Right? They predict uh, so one nation at a time can go socialist, whereas in communism, they predict as they continue to expand, eventually all nation states' boundaries will be broken down into this uni universal brotherhood of the proletariat, or the, of, the, of the common worker people who have now killed off all the people, property owners and, and, and educated, right? That's why, so Lenin says, you know, uh, not John Lennon of the Beatles, <laughs> so, uh, says that if we have to kill millions of people to bring about a more just and equitable society, that's a price worth paying. So he's saying that it's, it's okay to kill millions of people because in communism, you must kill all the people who own property and all the people who've been educated in the old system. Because they're, yeah. So every, all of these ideas are in, inevitably full religions. They're just secular humanistic religions. Uh, do we have uh, enough copies of the worldview and the epistemolo epistemology outline to hand those out in my black bag? Is my black bag here? Yeah, So I think I'll write on the board. Jane, why don't you write for me? You probably have better handwriting. So right up there is as high as you can reach. We've got to get you a stool. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, as high as you can reach, right, three, uh, three components of all worldviews. We may spend the whole time on number eight tonight. Because I guess you guys have never studied, it sounds like you've never studied the philosophies of history, right? So, like, it, you, you, uh, who could give me a definition of worldviews before, before I do? What is a worldview? You have one, whether you know it or not. Okay, you can't. No, you you can't use words to define words. It comes down to like whether you see man as truly good, truly evil, or neutral. Okay. All right. Let's let's hear Bob. All right. That's a good start on it. A set of assumptions that you use to interpret what reality is. 
Well, that would be a product of your worldview. That wouldn't necessarily be a worldview. That's just a, a small idea within a larger worldview. So a, a worldview is inescapably religious. It's a set of assumptions about three things. And you should memorize these three things. Are we finding them? Do we have the outline? And do we have enough for everyone to have one or not? Did you count them? So number one is who or what is ultimately real. So, uh, in fact, I, here, start way over on here because we'll, we'll make we'll make like tables. Like here, let's do this. Let's go with, uh, let's go with, uh, hold on, oops. Let's, oh shoot, this isn't working. There we go. All right, let's go to three categories. <laughs> well, here, you can, you can make three, you make three, three straight areas. That's why I didn't want to write. Make three straight areas. Okay. Well, who has good handwriting that's tall enough for the board? Anyone have good handwriting? Don't be shy. Chris Like, or, do you have good handwriting? Who has nice handwriting? Daniel, do you have nice handwriting? All right, let's have Daniel do it then. Because he's taller. That is, they have a board a little tall. Not much taller. All right, make it three quadrants. So up here you're going to put three ingredients or components of all worldviews. Do, we do we have enough for everyone or not? Uh, a couple of All right, is there anybody close enough to share? Like Chris and Sam Champoon are sharing. So we have one for just about everyone. Okay. So the number one thing, so you put this over in the far left, Daniel. Who or what? Here, give him a, give him a copy. All right, just try to copy that. You can just work on putting that on the board. Then we'll just talk about it. Just, just copy the whole diagram. All right, so who or what is ultimately real? Why do we have to say who or what? Because not everyone believes it's a who. Not everyone believes it's a who. Did get that? If you're an evolutionist, you don't believe who is, re is the ultimate reality. You believe what? It's a non-personal uh, thing. What about if you're a Buddhist? May the force be with you. That's a Buddhist idea, that there's a non-personal energy force that permeates all things. In the essence of salvation in Buddhism, every worldview has a doctrine of sin and every worldview has a doctrine of salvation. So everyone memorize that idea. In other words, all worldviews believe something is wrong with mankind. Something went wrong. Everybody sees that there's murder in the world, that there's economic injustice. We now, uh, thanks to William Wilberforce and Harriet Beecher Stowe and a number of thousands of other abolitionists, we now have a world where almost every nation on the planet is technically outlaws slavery, right? And guess what? We now have more slavery than at any other time in mankind's history. Everyone out there? Did you hear that? You should, that should upset you a little bit, maybe. What's that? 1775 is one of the worst places in the world for human trafficking. Yeah. Yeah, Dayton is a, is a hub of human trafficking. Toledo, Ohio is a hub of human trafficking. Do you know the mo many major corporations 
of both European and American origin have their biggest, highest level executive conferences in the nation of Brazil because being able to buy little boys for, for sexual purposes is, is easiest of any nation in Brazil. And that's how perverted the people who run the major corporations of the world are. Right? So, so Josiah's point, say that again. The reason there's it's who or what is? Because not everyone believes it's a who. Not everyone believes it's a who. So, on the, can I get a copy of the, of the thing? I probably have it memorized, but yeah, let's share it, Teresa. Um, the, there's four major worldviews, and I'm going to tell you a fifth one that some people believe exists today. Uh, are, are listed on the far left of, your, of the worldview overview. So in polytheism, is it a who or what? Who's? It's a bunch of who's. Cindy Lou who. <laughs> that, no, that's Dr. Seuss. So next to that, I have some of the major religions or philosophies that are related to those worldviews. So Greco-Roman mythology, which hopefully you had to study. You had to, definitely had to study that at Dominion Academy. You definitely have to study that in my history and humanities classes if you take them at Sinclair. Norse mythology, anybody familiar with that? There's actually kind of a comeback of North, Norse mythology. Like that's kind of a trendy thing among millennials. You know, Thor and all that worship the demons kind of stuff. Let's, have, let's French kiss the demons at the theater. Okay, uh, so um, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, even Native Americans, many African religions are polytheistic, right? Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't like the Native Americans fit into like more pantheism though? Or is it uh, no, some Native Americans might be considered pantheism. We'll talk about the difference between polytheism and pantheism in just a minute. Um, what, what does the Greek word poly mean? Many, right? Theism? The, theos is God, right? So many gods, right? So uh, what is a, a tick is a blood-sucking insect. Poly is many. So polyticks is many blood-sucking insects. Progress, Congress. <laughs> yeah, progress and Congress. Pro means for Congress. So anyway, just stu <laughs> No. Congress. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the jokes are no extra charge, by the way. We throw those in for free. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, what's the difference between pantheism? What's the word, Greek word pan mean? Oh, like Pan Am Airlines is a saying we fly to all the Americas. You know, we fly you to Central America, South America. If you, you want to go to Argentina, consider Pan Am Airlines, right? So what's, uh, what's the ultimate reality in pantheism? That everything. Yeah, there's a non-personal energy force that's behind everything. So there's a, a force in this table. It's not necessarily living. Not in the sense that we think of bios, or, you know, the Greek word for life. Right? So Luke, trust the force. And then when he finally trusts the force, you've taken your first step into a larger world. He's stepped out of natural-mindedness into the... Now, we would say, actually, that he, that would be, of course, a demonic spirit that, that's deceiving them into thinking they're a taint, uh, 
touching nirvana. But the idea of Buddhism is to touch this non-personal energy force and to eventually ha have your passions and your personalities and, and so forth uh, subjugated to being one with the non-personal energy force. So it's quite different than Christianity. Both Buddhism and Christianity start with denying yourself, but the idea of Christianity is you deny yourself to have fellowship with a living God who created you in his image, and as you do, you'll have more desires and ambitions and so forth. They'll just be sanctified to the glory of Christ, and you'll become a unique individual with more personality. You'll be a more, ex I'm definitely a more exciting person than I was when I was, I was scared of people before I was a Christian. You know, I was in wrestling, and when they shake hands at the beginning of the wrestling match, I was like, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> Couldn't we just talk this over? <laughs> I was a wimp in a coward. All right, so uh, theism could be called monotheism, right? And it's, so mono means? One. Right. All right. And uh, naturalism is the idea... What are some of the doctrines of naturalism? That well, let's go back to the primeval doctrine, like the the metaphysical idea. That matter is what eternal, eternal. right? So, what is somebody mentioned the second law of thermodynamics? Who brought that up earlier? All right, what is the second law of thermodynamics, Anvesh? Or Daniel brought it up? Yeah. Either one of you. Uh, all energy is dissolving into more chaotic uh, version. Right, so it's breaking down into less and less harnable forms. Matter is becoming released into energy and ceasing to exist at matter. So does that create a problem for the idea that matter is eternal? The truth is, it creates a great problem because matter had to have some big, uh, beginning. If it was eternal, it would have all dissipated into, you know, long before we ever came along, <laughs> right? Right, order to disorder, and the energy is being released, but the matter is breaking down in the process. It's less, well, it's less, uh, it's still matter, but it's less, uh, it's not just organized, it's less, you're less able to build from it. It's less usable. Less usable, in a sense. Less uh, organizable. Not just less organized, but less organizable would be the way I'm, what I'm trying to get, go for. So the problem is there's a, there's a philosophical problem with matter being eternal, that's all I'm saying. Right, but isn't it inescapable as part of logic that there must be someone or something that's that's eternal? Yes. That's sort of an inescapable idea, right? Yeah. All right. So that's uh, who or what is ultimately re real. So notice at the bottom, the whole reason I got into this is because uh, most naturalists are some sort of statist. What do I mean by a statist? Someone who believes the government's going to fix things. Someone who thinks the government's going to fix things. Like a Democrat or a Republican, right? As Christians, can we buy into that? No. 
right? Is government ever made anything better? Not much. Maybe. <laughs> Sometimes. So if you go back and study the ancient cultures of the world, ancient Chinese cultures, Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Incas, and so forth, one thing that's inescapable is everyone has a story of creation or the story of origins, right? So everyone has an explanation for how we got here. Now, ancient cultures, modern cultures, we would demand that at least be pseudoscientific. What do I mean by that? Right, right. So it, it needs to be at least some historically believable or supposedly scientifically believable. The reason I say pseudo is because it doesn't actually necessarily need to be uh, believe. It needs to seem believable to the, the people who adhere to it. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, were ancient cultures uh, interested in that? No, they wrote what was called mythopoeic. So write that word down. Is that on here somewhere? Well, it's on the back, the back side with the epistemology under somewhere. Let's see. Down at the bottom where it says Revelation or Mythopoeic literature. Okay, so what do I mean by Mythopoeic? What is poetry or peak? What does that word mean? Dominion Academy person knows the roots of that word. A polemic is the same root word. Poetry is the same root word. An explanation, a story. But a mythopoeic story is what kind of, it's not necessarily scientifically or historically accurate. They didn't actually care about that. It was just a way of explaining how things got. So if you read some of the ancient Egyptian ones, they, most of the ancient cosmogonies start with, in the beginning was water. Why? Because that's how it happens. No? Some, yeah, you said that. Symbol of chaos, symbol of chaos, you're right. It's, water is a universal symbol of chaos. So in the Egyptian ones, out of the water eventually started, to, silt started depositing and a little island started growing. You know, and, and the, that was, in land sort of represents the beginning of order. And then eventually out of that little primeval mucky island, a cow emerged. Now modern times, we would laugh at that. But what did Darwin teach? The same thing, except out came a, a, a single-celled organism. And it seemed more scientifically plausible, right? It's more What's that? It's because it's a more simple organism. But now what do we know about uh, the, the simplest cell? Things we didn't know before DNA and before biology, right? Now we know that the simplest living cell has over 20 types of protein in it, has thousands of pieces, millions of pieces of information in it through the DNA, that uh, it had, has multiple chromosomal structures in, human, in our cells. There's 23 mat matching pairs, right? Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the DNA information is in the millions of bytes of information. And all that had to come together at one time. And even more importantly, sometime, somehow there had to be an event that created spontaneous generation. In other words, if matter is eternal, somehow non-life, inorganic uh, material had to become life. Mm 
Why do you think there's so many scientific laboratories working on trying to create life out of non-life? Okay, I'm maybe getting into this too detailed, but you should kind of... If you can't understand these things, you'll, you will never be intimidated by the evolutionary biologist again. You really won't. It's, bi evolutionary biology is actually making many leaps of faith that are completely unprovable and irrational. Yeah, if you read uh, the evolutionist books to one another, which there's tens of millions on the internet you can find, uh, I mean, literally mil millions would probably not be an exaggeration. At least there's a lot of them, uh, maybe thousands, but <laughs> tens of, probably at least tens of thousands. But what, one of the main lines of argument is evolutionists rebuking other evolutionists. They're saying, hey, creation is clearly not feasible. So somebody needs to do a better job of coming up with a plausible way mechanism for evolution to, to be happening, and none of you are doing any good at it. Right? That's happening all the time. That's a major uh, subject covered by evolutionists all the time in writing to each other on the academic level. Like somebody needs to come up with a better explanation of how evolution could be, could be feasible, because what, what has to exist for... All right, we've already talked about how matter has to be eternal, how, but there has to be a principle that overcomes the second law of thermodynamics that exists in the universe. In other words, things have to be, life has to be getting more complex, not less. And matter has to be becoming more complex, not less. And living organisms have to be, have some sort of upward principle of evolution. Dar what did Darwin say it was? Yeah, natural selection, or sometimes called survival of the fittest, right? So evolution tends to lend itself toward a historically linear optimistic view of history, right? Okay, the second component of a worldview, and everybody has this, is what is the nature of mankind? Now, those, how many are in Equip for Life in, in our group? Jane, Sam Chenpoon, Anbash, who else? Deanna, anyone else? Sam Wante, who's not here tonight. Boy, it's hot in here. Um, does everyone else think it's too hot? That's good. It's cold? <laughs> okay. I'm just hot all the time, I think. It's probably the coffee. I should probably quit drinking coffee. No, God forbid. I should probably learn to drink iced coffee. Um, anyway, um, in the nature of man, that kind of breaks down into three questions. First of all, are you born with an ethical predisposition? All of this has to do with statement number eight, that the Bible contains the history of the kingdom. I want you to kind of understand philosophies of history tonight. Because everybody has a philosophy of history. Did you, did you know, uh, last night, by the way, I, you know, I borrowed those... Uh, American history tapes from you guys and I, we, that Catherine and I watched the first DVD last night, and it turns out they're by um, Ron Phillips, is, is that his first name? What's his first name? I forget. John, I forget his name, but his dad, we used to know his dad personally, and we used to uh, uh, work a lot with his dad back in the 80s. 
Howard Phillips, one of the great guys of all time, now now deceased, but uh, he used to speak at conferences that we put on and so forth. Um, tremendous. So he's dealing with the fact that today almost nobody likes history, right? How many people here, this is not to embarrass us, but this is to kind of understand our culture. Let's not have the Dominion Academy students weigh in on this yet. Uh, how many people have studied a lot of history? Would you say like you've read 20 books on history or more over time? Or listened to equivalent audios of a lot of history? Just watching movies count. <laughs> <laughs> not, not if they're not documentaries. Not if they're Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> That, that's my view of history. <laughs> my, my exposure to history came from watching Bill and Ted. <laughs> that's a pretty good movie. Yeah, History Channel has, but uh, History Channel tends to not have a lot of stuff that's not, they tend to mostly just cover World War II, I think. But so history is not real popular today is what I'm trying to say, right? Who loves history? I mean, really loves it and really studies it a lot. Now, put, raise your hands high if you said you love history. Keep them up there. Okay, so there's about six or seven in this room, and we are a Christian group. Now, do you think that skews the numbers at all? Of course it does, because the Bible is a book of history. We are the only of the major world religions that even makes a uh, halfway legitimate claim that our ideas and religion is, is rooted in historical events. Now, Ju Judaism and, and, uh, and uh, Islam would, would make that claim. Islam's claim to that is more dubious, but um, nevertheless, they would both make that claim. But Buddhism isn't necessarily trying to be rooted in history, nor is Hinduism, nor is naturalism. Right? So, I mean, all, all of them are forced to have some sort of historical explanation of origins. But history is the main point of Christianity, right? If we don't have a God who entered the world in, in the incarnation, who really lived a sinless life, who really did attesting miracles, whose words are really recorded accurately in the Gospels, who really was put under trial under Pontius Pilate, who really died on Golgotha Hill on a Roman crucifix, who really was buried in, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and who really rose from the dead and who really ascended and who really poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and who really said that he would continue to be with us through, through his apostles and his church. If, if we don't have church history and all of that, we have nothing, right? Right? So that to be a Christian and not love history is actually uh, incongruous. You, I mean, it's, it's uh, to not love history as a Christian is to really not love the Bible or God. Our God is the God of history. He declared the end from the beginning. And he's working, all, he's working history to work out his eternal decrees and foreknown purposes, right? Our number one subject as Christians is history. 
Everything else is secondary. Historical theology, theology and history are the kind of the starting points of our faith. Right? But really, theology is actually an explanation of what the historical events mean. So in some ways, history is even more foundational than theology. Not that they're not inextricably intertwined. They are. If you have history but in the wrong explanation, you got nothing as well. As the, as the way International proved to us last week. They have community. They speak in tongues. They... Uh, have books. They have books that explain the out certain parts of the Bible and and uh, and so forth. They have their own new New Testament, which takes some of the some of the scriptures that are most obvious about the deity of Christ out. And but they don't have the right explanation of of history because they don't have the deity of Christ. Anybody know in the early church a cult called Arianism? Who knows a little bit about Arianism? That could... All I know is the non-Trinitarian cult. Yeah. They... Arius was a bishop. When we were doing the reports on church history, Catherine did hers on Arius. And he was a bishop that taught that Jesus wasn't eternally the Son of God. That he was just a man. And his ideas became so popular within the church, it looked like they were going to overthrow the Orthodox Christian church. And in the east, Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Gregory of uh, Cappadocia uh, and Basil uh, withstood him. And in the west, the famous Athanasius. What's the saying that they had considering Athanasius? Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Uh, at Dominion Academy, you probably still have to read Athanasius' book on, on the Incarnation, right? Do they still read that? Do they read that? They just use parts of it? So he, at times, he seemed like he was single-handedly with, with resisting the Arians. He had to flee into exile to save his life five times because he was standing for the deity of Christ. Okay, second component of worldview, man, mankind. Do we have an ethical predisposition? So there's three choices there. Are, are we born basically good? basically neutral, which is called a tabula rasa. That's Latin for table, rasa, blank, blank slate. Are we a blank slate? Like this was a blank slate before we had this great artist named Daniel Williams produce, <laughs> produce this great art on here. It's no longer a blank slate. So the idea that you're born a blank slate means you could be written on by your environment, by your parents, by education right? Or are we basically evil? Now, I take a survey on this point in my uh, Search for Utopia class at Sinclair that I taught for four years, and I never had someone say that man has an intrinsic problem with evil. Never once. Not even people who claim to be Christians. Most people said that we were born basically good, I always had about 10 to 20% would say man is basically neutral. Now, what do you think the Bible says about that? That we have this problem called sin. What's that? Yeah, starting with when we 
ate the forbidden fruit, of course, Genesis 3, right. So the second thing is, uh, now I'm not sure I have these in the right order. They're kind of a, think of them as a th uh, three-legged stool. So this could be the first thing, in other words. But do we have innate value? So what's the Christian view? Yes. Yes, what, why? Because we're image bearers of God. It's called the Imago Dei, the, the image of God, right? What is the evolutionary view? Well, originally, when Darwin first came on the scene, because it, you, you can't overthrow the ideas of a culture overnight, they take time. So the, the 19th century evolutionist tended to see man as the highest or evolved species. Now, that's not, that's not actually what most people think today, is it? No, we're just a product of conception. Are we any more important than a worm or a giraffe or a gay whale or anything like that? Are we? In fact, we would expend millions of people's hard-earned incomes to save any, a species, right? And many people devote their whole lives to saving species. Now, I'm not saying the saving species isn't important, but there's several species that become extinct every week, by the way. Uh, so, um, what's that? Yes. Yeah, there's tens of thousands of species, and some, we're always losing a few. Probably, at least weekly, there's three or four that are lost. Just like, uh, you know, there's, there's languages that are lost. You know, predictions are, you know, what on the one hand you have Wycliffe, Bible translators who have this goal, and they're pretty close to their goal of having a, at least a new, new Testament or one of the Gospels translated into every language of the world, but there are less and less languages of the world all the time. Predictions are by the end of this century, we'll be down to about 20 languages in the world. Oh, that's easy. Of which, te <laughs> of which Telugu is one. <laughs> Which is one reason that we uh, are targeting starting the church in, uh, in Hyderabad. Because Ten Telugu will be one of the last remaining languages standing. Number one will be what? Sam Chenpoon should know this. Mandarin. Number two? English. Is it Spanish? French? I would imagine Spanish is more than French. All right, so anyway, um, so those are, is there any other choices? Think about it logically. Our man either has value. Now, value is, is, is uh, in relation to something, right? You know, Bob Timer, you tend to wear that uh, jacket fairly often. I've mentioned that to you before. You paid some money for it, right? Five bucks, ten bucks, right? And, and you keep it and you wash it from time to time because you value it, right? Value is always in relation to something else. And you might like it better than another jacket you have, right? <laughs> right? Value is always in relation to other things. You're either giving up your, you know, you work a job, right? And when and you're part of the value of that job is you pay your hard-earned bucks to the wonderful Wright State University for tuition and books and things like that, right? Because you value a college education. Value is always in relation to something. 
right? If you actually want to know if someone loves God or not, you could actually uh, look at their approach to work ethic, studies, and, and, uh, and money management. If you actually went over their budget, you'd know how much they love God. Where, where are their priorities financially? Do they, do they give uh, significant portions of their income above their 10% mandatory tithe to kingdom causes? It would be a bad day if you go to the person and just ask if they want to love God. Would that be a bad thing? Yeah. It depends on the context and if you were led by the Lord to do that or if it was someone you knew enough to be, you know, whether it was polite or not or whatever would depend on the situation. So, um, but value, then lastly, is our, are, are we mostly determined by heredity or by our environment? Nurture nature. Which is the whole nurture nature controversy, right? That's a big thing still in psychology, right? What, what is the answer today mostly? It's a mixture. Okay, is it heredity, is it a mixture, or is it environment? Now, if you think that we're a tabula rasa, going back to the first item, then you would put a lot of weight on the environmental factors, right? So what would you always want? You, you would tend to probably want more money for education, right? You might become a homeschooler because you don't want your kids having the state religion public education. Right? What, what is a person who sends their kids to Christian schools or uh, homeschooling, why are they doing that? Because of their worldview. Sometimes a lot of homeschoolers do a bad job of it. Some homeschoolers do a good job of it. But usually there's either a fear of the world or at least a disagreement with the world's education. Now, some homeschoolers are just, you know, uh, not, not a creating their kids to be dominion takers. Uh, generally, if a person has a, a view that the kingdom of God is, is going to be triumphant over the kingdom of evil, that will translate into being very, very good at homeschooling. You'll read a lot. You'll study a lot. You'll emphasize that a lot. You'll make sure all your kids can read when they're three and stuff like that, you know. What's that? Yeah, stuff like that. All right, so doesn't everybody have a, a view of, and one of the things that we talk about in the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series, uh, element number two is the nature of man, right? And one of the things we talk about is today's evangelicalism. Where is it not biblical about the nature of man? Yeah, most evangelicals have a very shallow definition of sin, which comes out of a thing called antinomianism. If you don't have God's law as the priority, then you'll just have, but most of it's about your external behaviors, like whether you drink beer or not, or what, that kind of thing. But it's not about the inner things of running from God and, and uh pride and selfish ambition and the things that are really more the roots of the tree, right? And so you get a lot of Christians. Uh, you know, I, I have had a number of wonderful Christians that I know 
tell me that one of the things that happened is as, as God began to draw them to himself, they grew up in a Christian home, but they thought of themselves more like the Pharisee does. I thank God that I'm not like other people and I'm a pretty good person and all this. And God had to do a work to help them start to see that they're a publican, right? Melody Burks gave me one of the best explanations of that and, and of anyone I've ever talked to. She was like very aware that that was how God started drawing him, her to himself and how her faith started becoming more real and deepening for her. Because, you know, a lot of, you get a lot of Christians kind of think of themselves as morally superior, don't they? Mm -hmm. I would say you haven't really gone very far with Christ until you really see yourself as deeply flawed. Right? Everyone in this room probably has had some, because there's nobody here that, that wouldn't claim to be a Christian, and I don't think there's anybody here that didn't have some time in your life where your sense of your own depravity was growing. Right? Has everybody had that time period in their life, right? And uh, where you thought you were a pretty good kid up until you started realizing that you weren't, Right? <laughs> And that's when you really started to understand grace in the, in the message of Christ. You know, a lot of people call a modern evangelicalism moralizing therapeutic deism. And you're kind of brought up told, being told to be a good little boy or a good little girl and do all these nice moral things. But it's a kind of performance-based. And eventually you have to come to some of the real issues of the gospel, one of which is the depth of your own sin and depravity. Until you're deeply shaken like that, who can give me an example of that happening to someone in, in the Old Testament and then another example in the New Testament? Who can tell me of an, of an experience in the Old Testament or the New Testament where a, a character came thought of themselves as basically pretty good and they came to see the depth of their sin? All right, come right, one at a time. How so? Yeah, but I would say that I don't know that he necessarily came to that understanding because he walked away. I, I would say Jesus was trying to help him come to that understanding by that. But I don't think, I, it, does, it doesn't leave us with a conclusion that he did, that that did happen. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. What did he say? Woe is me, for I come from a people of unclean lips. Yeah, for I come from a people of unclean lips, and I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? What, in other words, when he saw the holiness of God, he saw the not-so-holiness of Isaiah, right? right? He saw his own depravity, right? So who can think of some other encounters in the Bible like that? that that's, a, that's the best one, of the, in my view, of the Old Testament. There's, uh, of course... Get, let's do one, one, one or two others in the Old Testament. David, David when? Right. We have a record of what David's response was uh, in what? Psalm, Psalm 32 and 51, uh, especially 51 specifically says it was with his encounter with with uh, after Nathan the prophet. Yeah, Psalm 51 is, is considered one of the seven penitential psalms, and uh, it's a good one, like, you know. 
If you want to think a little bit about sin and the depth of your sin, think on Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Um, there's a, a teaching you can get from Stephen or Deanna in the uh, in all my Greg Weiss teachings on the seven penitential psalms. I taught on that at one point. And there are psalms that are kind of designed to help you with that. Don't we all struggle with self-righteousness? Isn't that one of the deepest parts of our depravity? Mm -hmm. One of our deepest parts of our depravity is we tend to think, you know, we're, I'm a pretty good Christian. Like especially when we're like having great worship and we're stirred up in the Lord and oh Lord I'll love you the rest of my life liar. <laughs> Hopefully God's not as cynical as me and He's not up there going yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> You've said that stuff before, <laughs> right? Okay, so all this is about a view of history. Okay, what you think about who or what is ultimately wrapped. Uh, real and in nature of man will spill over into your view of how we should treat one another, man in society. You know, words things like do we have rights or responsibilities? How much uh, how much time is given to uh, in energy and in discussion in a, in pop culture today is about our rights versus our responsibilities? What's that? All rights and hardly any talk about responsibilities, right? Now, what time of life does that tend to happen? As a baby. What's that? Like a baby. A baby has... Well, yeah, babies are more like me, me, mine. But yeah. philosophically, yeah. it tends to happen as part of adolescence. And what we have is there, you know, if you haven't read Diane West's book called The Death of a Grown-Up, I highly recommend that. Uh, but um, it's... A, it's about the the fact that nobody's growing up in America anymore, <laughs> that we have 50-year-old and 60-year-old teenagers. So because, you know, the idea that, that I'm a pretty good person and, and the idea of I, about my rights, aren't, aren't uh, teenagers always pressing for more rights and more freedoms, right? That I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and so forth. And the wise parent allows them to have more freedom and rights in relation to what? Responsibility. The, the, the fact that they show and manifest responsibility, right? You know, we had very clear rules in my, in my family that once you had a 3.5 after seventh grade, you had uh, more, more uh, freedoms. If your grades drop below 3.5 you didn't have freedoms <laughs> and once you had a job which all of my kids were making money by the time they were 12 or 13 they had jobs at the age of 14 why because I you want to go to Starbucks great <laughs> get a job and go to Starbucks <laughs> or waste your money on movies with your friends or buy music or whatever you want to waste your money on uh, beyond a certain, certain, you know, once you're tithing and doing certain responsibilities, then you can have a lot of freedom with your money once, once you're earning it yourself. So I taught all my kids how to have good jobs by the age of 14. Why wouldn't you? All right. So I wish I could get into some of these others. We won't get into the constitutionalism. Well, let's talk about constitutionalism. Actually, we should get in. That's part of a view of history. Why, uh, 
What was uh, what was one of the most the what 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 document of American history was written on a ship in 1620? Mayflower Compact. Yeah. And why is that important? And what worldview does that come out of? Does anyone know the history of how that came about? So let so let's uh, we're about to have Thanksgiving, so what this is well you might as well know about the Mayflower Compact. So in a little town in England called Scrooby, there was a uh, community of Christians that uh, was trying to get back to a New Testament lifestyle. And England, after the Reformation, had a tendency whenever the monarch was Catholic to make everyone have to be Catholic and the Protestants were persecuted. And when uh, the, the monarch was Protestant, uh, everyone had to be Protestant and they, uh, the Catholics were persecuted. However, who, both groups, both the Catholics and the, and the Protestant monarchs, uh, always persecuted the non-conforming Protestants. What's a non-conforming Protestant? Bob Timer is one, so. Well, in England, it would have been any, like, any, like, uh, you, you, what's what English called particular Baptists that you, Americans call Reformed Baptists, which is what Arbor Church is, that weren't, because you weren't conformist to the Church of England. You were creating separate churches. You were saying you were separatists, it was called. Puritans were people who wanted to purify the Church of England, and separatists wanted, wanted to separate and plant new churches. And the, although we call them Puritans in New England, uh, they eventually, eventually those terms changed, but they were originally separatists. They were people saying the Church of England is too corrupt. We can't save it. Let's build new churches. New wine has to be put into new wineskins. That's what Grace Christian Fellowship's all about. That's what the particular Baptists were all about originally, right? They're saying, hey, we have to form more biblically arranged churches, including, you know, plurality of presbyters and all the things the Bible describes as, uh, that a proper church should have, right? Okay, so they were under persecution, so they fled to... No, not originally. Holland. They went to Holland because why? Holland was the first country that had the very modern idea that you could be any type of Christian you wanted. Now, they didn't allow you to be atheist or anything back then, but you were free to be a non-conforming Protestant, to not go with the official state church. So they fled to Holland, but they didn't speak the language, and so they had some of the lowliest of jobs. So eventually, after about 13 years, it was decided that they should uh, uh, go to Plymouth, to go, go to go to America and plant a colony. But they were part of uh, a, uh, a company and a corporation they, that they uh, partnered with that basically dictated that they land in Virginia. In God's providence, a very important thing in your view of history, is God providential or not? Uh, in other words, does God overrule in history and, and according to his purpose? But they were supposed to land in what is today Virginia. But they didn't because they were blown off track by a storm. And they didn't have instruments to measure latitude correctly. They, didn't, they knew they were north of Virginia. They could measure latitude much better than longitude at that time. They knew they were north of Virginia. So they knew that their charter didn't apply. 
So they wrote the Mayflower Compact so they would have some written government because the charter and the, the deal they had with the company that sponsored them was not valid because of where they were landing. So they formed a government. That's what the Mayflower Compact is all about. Why was it important that it was written? Why did they write it down? Why didn't they just talk about it and have a vote? That way it can be set in stone and decided upon. It right. Well, where does that idea come from? From the Bible. They were Protestants. Right. So two things that went into the Mayflower Compact is the doctrine that covenants have to be specified by written covenant. That's a scriptural idea. And that man is basically sinful, so some government has to be formed to restrain man. Well, but the Magna Carta goes back to, to British history and so forth. I'm, I'm talking about the first doc, document. Of course, it it's, uh, goes back to it goes back right. They get which all the way goes back to the Bible. The whole idea of written contracts and so forth is a is a, bit, a Protestant idea because of the whole return to the Bible. So, um, but in terms of the Mayflower Compact, uh, 1620, they they wanted it written. So, so the the idea is is called social compact or constitutionalism. So, do you know when our country first started, the act, the idea, the Constitution actually was uh, meant to be lived by? Do you know that we there's not, not even a pretense of following the Constitution in most of the federal government today, for the most part? Starting in, say, with Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s, sending troops to Korea, what, what, what did, what, why did that break the Constitution? Right. Without a declaration of war from Congress, the president can't send troops into battle, but every president since Eisenhower has done so, right? Right. So they'll just call it a police action or a conflict, right? They just change the semantics. So the point is, no, but, you know, but the, the Protestants, if you had a, a truly Christian worldview, you would actually want to insist that the Constitution would be followed. Just like as a Christian, you should want to follow the actual scriptures. That's a view of history. Another aspect of history would be where, where you would see the state as re, is getting its authority from. So in naturalism, where do, you, where do they see the state getting its authority from? What? Man. Man, the consent of the governed or something like that depending on whether it's a democracy or a meritocracy or or whatever, right? What? Is that a word, meritocracy? Yeah, meritocracy means um, the people who are in the government are there because they're the most educated. Like Plato's Republic would be a meritocracy. He's saying that the wise philosopher king should run the society, the most educated and the smartest. There's a lot of that idea in our government today. You know, like all these people went to Ivy League schools. They, they are, they're the rightful rulers. You don't know what to do with your money. That's called, you know, the IRS takes it from you. It's because they know how to spend it better. It's, right? What's that? <laughs> all right, so let's go back to statement eight. The Bible is a, contains the history of the kingdom. So I just want, so, so I want you to know that there's, 
chaotic views of history, like history is going nowhere. There's cyclical views of history. What's a cyclical view of history? Everything repeats itself. So like Baal worship, why did they have to copulate in the fields every spring to like appease the gods of fertility and all that stuff? Like both Ashtoreth worship and Baal worship were highly sexual and had all kind of orgies out in the fields and so forth to start the cycle over again. Right? That's why the, you know, the God of the Bible didn't want his people involved in Baal worship or, or Ashtoreth worship. And Israel constantly start what fell into that stuff, right? And that's it. They had the problem is is that they uh, Israel was supposed to have a his, uh, a linear optimistic view of history based on a sovereign God, and they and Baal is a cyclical view of history, right? So that's your view of you know your view of eschatology actually has a lot to do with your view of God in the Bible. Right? So, um, in fact, I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with this. I only got 10 minutes left. Um, so uh, then there's, of course, linear views of history, which we've all said already can be upwardly linear or downwardly linear, right? So uh, a humanistic downwardly linear would be man is, is things are getting worse and worse. Like uh, global warming and uh, some of the ideas today are somewhat downward views of linear history. We're destroying the planet and it's going to get worse and worse. Now, all uh, views of history have a doctrine of the, that man is morally flawed or a doctrine of sin. So what, and, and therefore, they would see certain kinds of people and certain kinds of economic uh, systems as inherently evil. What, is, what do the global warming people think about uh, economic systems? That capitalism is destroying us, Right? That we need the government, we need a government planned economy. Right? Is that correct, Jeff? Battle with that every day in your job, probably, right? People want a government planned economy. So your view of history will also have to do with your view of the state and what and your view of who who should control the money supply and and so forth. Your view of economics. All right, so there's a chaos view of history, a cyclical view of history, upwardly linear and downwardly. Any others come to mind? So let's deal with Christian views of eschatology. So does everyone know the four major ideas of amillennialism, postmillennialism, uh, historical dispensationalism, and and what's and, uh, historical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism? Everybody understand those four basic ideas. So, an amillennialist, what what is their view of history? And amillennialism, in 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 terms of the reign of Christ, would say to some degree Christ reigns already. He reigns mostly through his church, dealing with our statements earlier about where God's will is willingly enacted. 
And what would be their view of the future of the church? Uh, it could be, you could, it, depending on the amillennialists, it would be either cyclical or chaotic. They would say the church, God gives the church more or less influence at various times according to his sovereign purposes, and we don't necessarily know why. But we should always be working to extend the rule of Christ. But, but God is going to ordain periods where the church is in decline, and we don't ultimately know to what degree the kingdom will be manifest before the second coming of Christ. So what they say No, because they wouldn't say the spiritual is necessarily advancing or making progress. It's sometimes declining and making less progress. Just until Christ's second coming. Right, until Christ's second coming. Then ultimately, all of them after second, Christ's second coming believe that it'll be, whoop. You know. that, that's an eschatological term, whoop. <laughs> it's very technical. Um, what is... Uh, what is uh, Dispensational premillennials believe. It's going to get worse and worse. History is getting darker and darker. They would emphasize verses like uh, where the scripture says that evil men will wax more eloquent or more evil in the King James. What's some of the other? Find that one in the King James that evil evil men will wax. I think it, in King James says wax more evil. You know what verse I'm thinking of? Somebody find that for. You know, like uh, in the New American Standard says something like evil men will progress from bad to worse or something like that. What is it? Okay, go ahead and read it. Right, so that's the King James. Someone give us a couple other translations on that one. Second Timothy 3.13. It's a view. Go ahead. Right, so dispensational premillennialism would emphasize that view is the direction of the church, right? Will there be faith in the earth? So forth, the, you know, left behind series and, uh, you know, uh, what's that dude uh, that used to be with Campus Crusade for Christ? Uh, Al Lindsay and the late great planet earth. Satan is alive and well on planet earth. And, you know, evil is going gonna, is, is gonna to beat the snot out of all of us. A lot of Christians who have that view are homeschoolers, but they're more not, they're not homeschoolers so that they can train their kids for dominion. They're home and therefore they don't necessarily emphasize education with their kids and equipping and training them to be sent to, in the, to schools to be conquerors eventually. They're still going to Christian colleges and universities when they're in grad school and everything else because they're afraid of the world. Right? So they're not necessarily trying to equip their kids to be world conquerors. They're trying to equip their kids to, be, to, not, be to not be exposed to the world. That's a big difference, right? You know, it's the reason I let my kids watch Star Wars and I taught them about the world views in Star Wars. I used Star Wars as a teaching tool so to teach my kids about a Christian dominion worldview. Right? Because all, all views have a view of history, right? What's the post-millennial view? Why? Where's, 
where does it start in origins? Well, <laughs> what? Pentecost. Like you would say, like a postmillennial view would be that the first coming of Christ, the first advent of Christ, was the eschatological event of history. And that the kingdom of darkness was defeated, and the power of sin was broken, and God created the church as an upward mechanism to overcome evil, and that the church is supposed to be spreading the crown rights of Jesus. That's why Dominion Academy is called Dominion Academy, because they're post-millennialists. <laughs> right? They're saying, uh, you know, the, the church is going to be triumphant progressively, and it has been since the day of Pentecost. And think about it, if you really, if you weren't influenced by, like, thing, like we live in America, where uh, because dispensational premillennialism took over the majority of evangelical thinking in the late 1800s, we have experienced for over 100 years the decline of Christian culture. But worldwide, Christian culture is growing and expanding by leaps and bounds all over the place, right? And if you take step back and look at history as a graph, right, how many people... Uh, on the day of uh, Easter, the first, the first Easter, what was the state of the church at that time? What's that? There were probably about 120. Jesus, uh, be, you know, that's how many at least obeyed him enough to go into the upper room in Acts 1 or less. There were some, there were some disciples still in the upper room, Right. And were they uh, embracing a, a victorious message in eschatology? They were, they were, they had the doors locked. They were afraid. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? That's, that's on Easter Sunday. And what, they're, they're completely discouraged. And they started, they didn't know Jesus was the one walking with them. And they start to explain, basically, boys, things are bad. <laughs> You know, are you the only one in Jerusalem doesn't know? Basically, they're, they're saying the bad events, that we were hoping this guy was the Messiah. And now we don't know what to do. The Romans have killed him. And beyond this, some of our women said this morning that he was risen. We don't know what the heck that means. But, you know, like, things are bad. You know? Right? So what was the state of the church on the first Easter a year later? Probably about 5,000 Christians. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, but that's not the only event that happened the first year. That's just the first day. That's 50 days after Easter. There's another 315 days before the first and second Easter. By then, the church had grown to at least 5,000 people. And were they as cowering? No, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and gave a very victorious speech, right? And he's still in Jerusalem. The Romans are still there. Pilate's still there. You know, but he's emboldened with a new view of history. And he's saying that the Lord has made it manifest that this Jesus is both the Lord and the Christ. And they begin to give speeches that are constantly saying, you Sanhedrin people crucified him and his blood is on you. That was pretty gutsy if you think about it, right? The, the speeches in the book of Acts all emphasize 
that they call the Sanhedrin murderers of God himself. I mean, I don't know how much more accusative you can get. <laughs> I don't know how much more bold you can get. That's just b brash. Right? The Sanhedrin is the most powerful institution. It'd be like if you were arguing before the Supreme Court and you just said, you communists, sons of blank and of blanks and you losers and, you know, you purveyors of all evil. You don't follow anything to do with the Constitution. You give this pretense of following the Constitution and you don't, you know, you just say whatever you want to say. And you're, you've made yourselves to be the high priest of your new humanistic uh, religion. You hate everything our forefathers stood for. Now you'd be right. <laughs> but I don't know if that if, if you should be that bold or not. <laughs> right? So that your view of history has a lot to do with everything. So let's read number eight again. We just got number eight done today. The triune God, or the Bible is the book of the kingdom of God. It takes the kingdom of the, the, the history of the kingdom on earth. The laws and the covenants of the kingdom. We talked a little bit about the covenant idea tonight. Do do we have uh, this, do you have access to the uh, Dropbox? Yeah. Uh, we're, it's too late. We should probably talk talk about the eight ideas of all covenants, but um, it contains a progressive unveiling of the person of the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. It increasingly brings to light his ways, his heart, his character, and his kingdom purposes through his ecclesia. What does the word ecclesia mean? Church. And give it more, le more, more, more out of Greek culture. Called the called out assembly, right? So the ecclesia was first used in Athens for the citizens who were allowed to vote. All free men were allowed to vote in Athens, one of the first democracies. And the ecclesia is the, those people God has called out to be his people. Right, and Jesus uses that word twice in in the Gospels, Matthew sixteen and Matthew eighteen, but then the apostles use that word a lot in practically every New Testament letter and throughout the Book of Acts. So, um, but their view is that the church is going to is God's instrument to reveal more and more. Of God, and that the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas, and that's the mission of the earth, of the church. This modern idea that the church is going to get darker and darker and darker, no Christians actually had that idea until at about the time of the Civil War. It's a completely modernist idea that came out of the modernist fundamentalist idea. And it doesn't matter that 95% of evangelicals buy it. What matters is that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the gates of Hades. And he's always been in his church. There's no idea that's completely modern that, that actually is biblically based. Because what you're basically saying is that no Christians believe the truths of the Bible for, for 1900 years and all of a sudden we figured it out. It's the ultimate arrogance, right? that all the Christians had it wrong throughout all the centuries until we modern evangelicals came along, which is basically what evangelicalism is saying. 
and that's what actually leads to the incredible complacency in evangelicalism because complacency means to be self-satisfied. You will become mediocre if you kind of have this uh, inner arrogant idea that we got it all together. So you won't see your need and you won't be very hungry for, to press into more. You'll be like, well, I grew up with Bible stories. I know all about it and so forth. And most people who don't know much about God have that, have that idea. So, anyway, um, I, I wish we could have, uh, we might do more with this, the other side, epistemology. Uh, keep these things and reload, reload that uh, in the folder when you get home. Because we don't have time to get into any of that. Uh, somebody read nine for next week, just out loud real quick. Jonathan Garrett, why don't you read number nine? Now, some of you might have had yours read a little different because I didn't know that Stephen used some of the old outlines, but I, I changed that one a little bit today and made it a little bit more complete and accurate. So if you had today's version, yours read like Jonathan's. If you had previous versions, it left a little bit of what he set out. Um, so we'll start there next week. Where I didn't mean to spend this time on the kingdom of God, but I think that most... How many of us grew up in, in somewhat Bible-believing churches? Most people in this room, like there's people like Bradbury, who, who was converted to Christianity in, in relatively recent years? Now, I'm not talking about you grew up thinking you were a Christian and you really got converted, because that's probably most of us. But I mean, how many people grew up in churches where you kind of thought you were a Christian? Almost everybody, right? Who, Bradbury, are you the only one who kind of grew up as a good old pagan? You were sort of in between? Yeah. I was mostly a pagan, but I, I mean, my parents were Catholic, but I, I didn't buy into it at all. Um, so we only have a couple pagans. Let's get together for pizza. No. <laughs> pagan fellas. The, form, the church of the former pagans. <laughs> we're going to start a church for backsliders. Church of the former day saints. No. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you can you can go ahead and do that. What's that? If um so what was I going to say about that? Um so of those who grew up in Christian churches, how many had a lot of study of the present realities of God's kingdom here and now on earth as a focus? Anyone? And do, do most people see by now that the kingdom of God really, it, that we're not stretching it when we say that's the major idea of the Bible? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet, Almost no one, no, almost no Protestant Bible-believing Christians are talking about that. Some Reformed ones do, but that's about it. That's amazing, isn't it? Because you grow up kind of believing you're in a Bible-believing church, but in essence, what are we doing? We're actually straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, right? We're majoring in minor issues in the church today. 
how many people I've could say that you don't do this lightly that you've actually come to see in the last few years that that we were brought that we've been brought up in a lot of the churches majoring in major minor issues today right that's a problem isn't it Jeff Burks why don't you close this prayer